In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and beginning with scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip, that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast, where Bishop Joseph Strickland and I and other members of the Institute talk about issues in the light of faith. We talk about how to navigate your life, the present lives that we're all living today, in the light of the eternal truths that are guarded by the Catholic Church. Today we have a very special guest joining us, Brandon Vaught. He is a longtime friend of mine. I have known Brandon since we were both much younger and getting involved in this, and we had uh, smaller families, getting involved in this business of evangelization, of really speaking up and um, helping people lead themselves and others to Christ. There's no greater job in the world, no greater purpose in our lives. Let me tell you a little bit about Brandon. He is, and I've seen him go through all of this, and it is, to repeat, just a real privilege and honor to have you here, Brandon. He's a best-selling and award-winning author, blogger, and speaker who works for Bishop Robert Barron's Word on Fire Catholic Ministries as the content director. How many years have you been doing that, Brandon? Oh, almost six or seven years now, I think. Yeah, I remember when you started there. He is like he likes to say one of the millennial nuns before nuns were cool i guess when it came <laughs> when it came to religion for brandon as a young man as a mechanical engineer he was a student at florida state university and then like many converts he began a passionate search for truth and he wasn't going to stop until he found the fullness of the truth that led him to the catholic church in 2013 he started a website called strange notions which sort of shook up the entire dialogue between atheists and Catholics. It was a website specifically inviting atheists to join in dialogue. And you did something that I don't think has ever been accomplished before, and it's still going, um, where atheists are actually having daily conversations with Catholics. They, don't, they rarely agree, but they have conversations and it's civil. Um, Brandon was named one of the top 30 Catholics under 30 by Focus as well as the top 30 Catholics to follow on Twitter. He's the author of seven books, including Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to the Church and the Church and New Media, Why I'm Catholic and You Should Be Too. That book won first place in the 2018 Catholic Press Association Book Awards, and his work has been featured in many, many places. NPR, Fox News, CBS, EWTN, America Magazine, Vatican Radio, Our Sunday Visitor, National Review, and Christianity Today. You hear him around the airwaves on Catholic Radio and speaking to various audiences about evangelization, the use of digital media, Catholic social teaching, and spirituality. You can find more about him at brandonvot.com. BrandonVogt.com. 
Welcome today, Brandon. We're here to talk about your newest book, What to Say and How to Say It. Discuss your Catholic faith with clarity and confidence. Oh, well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. And it goes without saying, I think I'm so uh, proud of the St. Philip Institute and all that you guys are doing there in Texas, a phenomenal group of people and phenomenal things you're doing. So I'm honored to be here. Thank you for joining us. So your book is titled What to Say and How to Say It. And I almost felt like I, di I didn't need to, I almost felt like I already knew what I was going to say because I've watched you over the years make many of these arguments and demonstrate to people how to say it, how to speak the truth in love, which is something Bishop Strickland is very, very big on. Um, you break the book down, answering atheism, evil and suffering, trusting the gospels, explaining the Eucharist, and then you get into some real difficult social issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, and transgenderism. Thank you for putting all of this together as a resource for people to use. You're welcome. Yeah, I when I was putting together the book, I tried to hone in on seven hot button prickly topics that most Catholics are terrified to discuss. You know, I would send out surveys to thousands of Catholics via email and social media, and these tended to be the ones that floated at the top when I asked them you know, what topic makes you most uncomfortable when it comes up in conversation? Which ones do you wish would just disappear? You didn't have to address them. And the ones that you just uh, ticked off were, were typically those. Um, most Catholics have a general sense of what they believe about these topics. So something like abortion, they, they know abortion's wrong, but when abortion comes up in a conversation with friends, coworkers, family members, they get tongue-tied, they get nervous, they're worried about saying the wrong thing in the wrong way. Uh, so that's why I put together this book, is to help Catholics have better discussions about each of these hot-button issues. Brandon, I, I really appreciate that approach. Um, I'm reminded, as we were talking before we began the, the podcast, um, we have a great uh, marriage formation program that uh, Deanna Johnson is working with through the St. Philip Institute. And I often have the opportunity to talk to the couples that are going through marriage formation. And I often tell them, if there's something that you're uncomfortable talking about it, about, that's what you need to talk about in order to develop the skills of having that communication and also to get those issues that maybe are, are prickly, I like that word, um, and I think I would apply that to these discussions as well. Sadly, we're living in a time for all kinds of reasons, I guess. I think we all see this, that sometimes it, it immediately goes vitriolic um, and unkind and just attacking language rather than just saying, OK, as, um, as a leader years ago used to say to us, we have to agree to disagree agreeably. And to me, that's part of the how-to. I haven't had a chance to read your book yet, but I believe that that's part of the how that we need to approach this, that having grown up um, here in a mostly non-Catholic area, the diocese has grown as far as the Catholic population in the oh, just over 30 years it's existed. But with all that growth, we're still below 10% of the population. So there's plenty of opportunity to talk to people who have all kinds of strange ideas about the Catholic faith and, and also have very clear disagreements. 
with what the Catholic faith teaches. But I guess the one of the things that I try to do is to remind people that it's good news. What the church is about is good news. And I think sometimes even as Catholics, we tend to forget that. And also that we should approach this joyfully, that this is a treasure to share. The gospel just recently talked about the pearl of great price. And you're two converts. I'm a cradle Catholic. And I think many of us cradle Catholics, as I like to say, too many of us are still asleep in the cradle when it comes to our faith. Converts are people that as adults journeyed into the church, reasoning and asking questions. And I think that's why you bring so much richness to these kinds of conversations. So thank you for this book. I think it can be a great tool for our diocese and for people hopefully having very positive conversations, whether or not the Holy Spirit calls them to enter the church. And we have to remember that's the grace of God. But to use our intellects and to use our ability to have conversations, to at least let people know that some of the, especially around here, some of the fallacies about Catholicism are just not reality. One thing that I, having grown up here, and I've actually written about it and put it in the newspaper here, that we do not worship Mary. Um, and a lot of people in our Bible Belt community here, very wonderful people, evangelical Protestant, but you could just walk down the street and interview people. Um, these days you'd have to stay socially distant, but if you did that and asked people, what's your main concern about the, the Catholic Church? I believe a lot of people would still say, well, those are those people that worship Mary, and that's wrong because we should only worship God. As Catholics, we totally agree. Um, but I think it's that kind of conversation that we need to have. So I appreciate your book. Yeah, well, I appreciate all of those warm words, Bishop. Thank you for the encouragement. But I, I totally agree with your recommended approach. You know, I've always taken <clears throat> as my model uh, St. John Paul II's adage that the church proposes, she doesn't impose. And that's kind of the, the model I exhibit in this book is that for each of these issues, the point isn't to shove the Catholic position down an unwilling person's throat. Your goal is not to just argue them into submission, but to propose rational reasons why the Catholic position makes sense. Even if, as you say, it might not fully convert them, even if after one conversation they don't sign up for RCIA, you can at least show that the Catholic position is rationally defensible, that it's sensible. I can see why a person might accept that position on marriage or abortion or transgenderism. To me, that's kind of the first step goal. Um, there's so many people in our culture, you guys know this as well as I do, that think Catholicism is just backward, silly superstition, totally irrelevant, anti-science, anti-reason. Um, so I think a first step is to at least convince people that, well, no, no, we, we have good reasons for believing the things we do. We'd like to propose them to you and then you tell us what you think. Yeah. Yeah. Specifically, some of the arguments in here, a, a couple of them, I just wanted to uh, get you to tell us a little more about how you make these arguments. Um, the one on abortion, like abortion is something I spent years talking about, and now with teenage daughters, I, I'm happy to see that they thoroughly understand, well, I won't say they thoroughly understand it, but they, they thoroughly understand why it's wrong. 
and they do go out there and talk to their friends about it um, and sometimes it gets a little wily but <laughs> they they understand that this is a very critical issue in our culture and I love the way you do the trot out the toddler argument it's a it's a very powerful way to argue that you're just extending the argument from zygote to some other point in life could you tell us a little more about that sure and I'm totally borrowing this from my good friend Trent Horn and his yeah. mentor, the pro-life apologist Scott Klusendorf. But essentially, they use an analogy of the unborn child to a toddler. And they say any argument that justifies the killing of an unborn child, if you apply it to a toddler and people recoil, then that's a bad justification for killing an unborn child. So for example, someone might say, look, I'm against abortion. I'm not a fan of abortion. I think it's bad. but..." You know, suppose a mother gets pregnant, she is poor, she lives in a dangerous gang-ridden area, the father is out of the picture. I mean, any child born in that circumstance is gonna have a horrible life. They're gonna be born into poverty and violence and maybe drugs and like, how could you want that child to be born into such a dysfunctional situation? But this is where you can use the trot out, the toddler strategy. You can say, well, let me, I, I get that and I'm sympathetic to it, but let me ask you this, suppose that um, a mother in that exact same circumstance had a two-year-old son, you know, an already born child, two-year-old son, and he was living in this exact scenario. He was living in a very impoverished place, lots of violence, very little opportunity, maybe drugs and guns and gangs and all that stuff. Would it be better just to kill him to prevent him from living in that environment anymore? And of course, no one would agree with that. Every time I've used that, uh, posed that hypothetical question, no one's ever said, well, yeah, that's fine. I think it's a good idea to kill him. But if they deny that it's okay to kill a two-year-old, then you can say, well, then why would it be okay to kill an unborn child for the same reason? Um, in fact, you could even say the unborn child, you know, still has, say, nine months to be born their situation could change. Maybe the mother moves, maybe mm -hmm. the violence subdues, but for the two-year-old, we already know he's definitely living in a bad situation. And if it's not okay to kill him because he's living in a bad situation, then it's certainly not okay to kill an unborn child who might be born into a bad situation. Um, so I love that strategy because I think it highlights the monstrosity of abortion and the bad reasoning that people often use to justify it. Yeah, it, it forces people to admit the scientific truth that we know that the zygote is, from the earliest days, is a human, is a living human. Um, and the extreme of that argument is, if you wanna end all suffering in the world, you could just kill all the people, and then we wouldn't have any more suffering. Yeah, and there's not a few people that advocate something close to that, you know, that they say, well, people are really the problem, and what we need is less people. Um, and again, I, what always strikes me about advocates of that sort of position is they very rarely advocate the killing of people close to them. It's always people on the other side of the world or people in mm -hmm. other cultures or other cities that are, are the problem. Um, you see this a lot in Western cultures, for example, that want to impose contraception and abortion on African countries for that reason, that mm -hmm. you know a lot of Africa's problems would be solved if they didn't have such big families. And mm -hmm. again, my, my eyes widen at that because I think, wow, like people aren't the problem. People are the solution to all that's wrong with the world. People are 
innovators and come up with solutions to food shortages and infrastructure problems. And the solution is not to eradicate people, but to leverage all the gifts people provide. Um, so I've never found any traction with, with that view either. Yeah, you had a quote, Bishop. It was, um, what good is a pristine planet if no children get to live on it? Yeah. Mm. Brandon, I'd be interested in really all the the prickly topics that you mentioned. I mean, it's you could spend a lot of time, to, and I'm sure you have, talking about each of these. But to me, I see a. I, I'd like your reaction to what I see as a common thread with a lot of these issues. And you mentioned it a few moments ago, good reasoning. Um, I think in many ways, certainly, I think people are as intelligent or probably more intelligent than as far as IQ than ever before. We have better nutrition, we have better opportunities. But as far as just the basic ability to think through an issue, just reasoning and not letting the emotions just override everything. I think that's one of the main issues that I see. Um, you may be aware that uh, I'm impressed that you're the uh, in the top 30 Catholic tweet 30. people, tweet, yeah. tweeters, <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> I tweet occasionally and it, it really surprises me and I'd like to hear your reaction because I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people about these very prickly issues. Um, I'm almost, I am taken aback. I, I've gotten so that I really just don't read the responses to my tweets. I just try to put it out there, things that I believe, trying to be hopeful and, and clear and truthful and, and to just shepherd as much as I can through a tweet. Um, but I've just refrained from reading the responses because sometimes they just blow your hair back and it's like, what? And it's like, did you really think about this or is this just an emotional, visceral response? And, and I see so much of that. I'd like to hear your thoughts on if you experience that and, and how do you recommend, I mean, you talk about how to say it, and I'm sure part of that is working through the emotion, not ignoring it probably, but I, I'd like to hear your thoughts on how do we bring reason into it without sounding cold and heartless? Because I think that's where a lot of people, especially as I talk to young people, it's like mom and dad are just heartless. They have all these conservative views or this bishop or this priest. And young people want to just say, oh, we need to be driven from the heart. We need to love each other. And I think that reasoning in, in combination, absolutely, Christ says love each other. But we have to think about what loving each other really means. Mm. Yeah, well said. My experiences mirror yours, Bishop, uh, especially on social media. There's an obvious lack of, of rational dialogue. A lot of it is just emotive spleen venting. Um, you know, Alistair McIntyre, the, the famous Catholic philosopher, uh, spoke a lot about when rational dialogue collapses, you end up with two inevitable results. One is the rise of the emotivist culture, where it's just, I feel this way, you feel this way, and we kind of just shout our feelings back toward each other aggressively. But then the second result, which stems from emotivism, is violence. That if we don't have a way to settle our disagreements rationally, 
we can we can share our feelings and emotions, but inevitably we're gonna reach a tipping point where it's just whoever's the loudest, the strongest, the most aggressive, their views prevail. I think we all see this on social media. Um, sure. It doesn't always devolve into physical violence, but the violence of the rhetoric across social media, I think proves McIntyre's point. So what we need to do, and Catholics, I mean, we should be in the front lines encouraging this. We need a revival of critical thinking and rational dialogue. I think back to my upbringing in public schools and then my four years at Florida State University, a public college, I wasn't required to take a single course in philosophy or a single course in logic or a single course in any sort of critical thinking. You know, yeah. we, we did a lot of math, a lot of science, a little bit of history and English, but we were never really taught how to recognize uh, logical fallacies, how to put together a coherent argument, um, how to engage respectfully and charitably with people you disagree with. These are all skills that I think were, were just imbued by generations of people before us, but we've lost them today. So I think in our Catholic schools, through ministries like um, your institute, Word on Fire, we need to be encouraging this sort of dialogue. It's okay to talk with people who uh, seriously disagree with our views, but to do it rationally, charitably, uh, it's the only way we're gonna we're gonna make any headway. And then um, to your to your other point, Bishop, um, the the uh, sense that you know Catholics are not really compassionate or sensitive to other people; they're just sort of cold and rigid and conservative in the worst sense of the word. Um, one thing I encourage throughout this book is the first step you should take when disagreeing with somebody is to acknowledge the positive intention in their view. So for example, um, when it comes to the issue of abortion, which we just talked about, it's not that people that uh, identify as pro-choice are necessarily monstrous. They really do have a sense of compassion for mothers who are facing difficult pregnancies. This is usually the reason why they wanna justify abortion because they don't want a mother in a tough situation to have a child that will complicate her life even more. And so if you begin a conversation with a person like that by immediately excoriating anyone who is uh, pro-abortion, you're not gonna get anywhere because they're gonna see you as, as you just described, Bishop, as just mm -hmm. cold and heartless and rigid and you, know, you don't really care about women. The first move I usually make is to acknowledge the good sympathy and compassion they have for women and say, look, I'm, I'm as pro-woman woman as you are. I, I don't think we should put women in horrible situations when we can avoid it. Um, but that said, protecting a woman doesn't justify committing another evil like abortion. We need to find some way to respect the dignity of both the unborn child's life and the woman's life. Um, so I found when you can find that shared ground of agreement where you can sympathize with the thing that they care about and are sensitive about, you have a much more fruitful discussion moving forward. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Yeah, and you know, Brandon, I, I, uh, you probably remember when my kids were smaller, but just a little further down the trajectory with the ages of the kids, you know, my teenage children now, I've seen them grow up learning the Catholic faith, and I almost want to run out to parents and warn them, if you teach your children to search for truth, beware, that's what they're going to do. <laughs> and you need to be ready not just to talk to everybody else, it, to talk to your own children because they're gonna ask you very hard questions. 
And what I and what you said about reason and, and even the title of your book, Discuss Your Catholic Faith with Clarity and Confidence. I've seen that make a difference, but I've seen it be very hard for the for Catholic children. They encounter like the rawest of these things. I mean, we're we're talking about hopefully adults on Twitter that don't always know that to be true, but we're we're talking about adults on Twitter and social media. These Catholic children go into the hallways of public schools and they're encountered with kids who are adamant about abortion, even even young young boys, and they don't even know why. They don't even know what we're talking about here. They don't get that point. They don't understand the Catholic view of personhood. They don't have any anchoring. They don't even understand what it means to have goals in life to get to heaven. They're just existing from one day to the next. And there's really a clash in the cultures that our kids will have to encounter. And peer pressure can turn your kid away from the faith if you don't watch out. Um, and you do have to be ready. So, I mean, I, for that reason, I recommend this book and anything else Brandon has written for both parents and your kids just to help them have some kind of muscle to navigate their way through these issues. Yeah, I think you're right, Stacey. You know, I originally wrote this book with a Catholic audience in mind, helping Catholics to dialogue with non-Catholics about these issues. But what you just described is dead right. It's just as important for Catholic parents to be able to have these conversations with their kids and prepare their kids to face these arguments because they inevitably will. How many stories have we all seen where you know, typically Catholic kid raised in the church goes to Sunday mass, but then either they go off to high school or more often they go off to college. They face some of these arguments for the first time and we're not prepared for any of them. They've never talked to atheists or they've never heard arguments in support of same-sex marriage or transgenderism and their faith immediately fizzles. There, there's just no strong foundation of, of reason that undergirds it. Um, I think this book would help a lot of parents to prevent that. You know, my, it's my goal that you know any high schooler would be more than capable of mastering the arguments in this book. Any high schooler should be able to explain the Catholic position on these views and defend it. You know, to to offer good reasons why they believe what they do. Yeah, I think that goes to the whole reason that we have the Saint Philip Institute here, because people haven't been taught. I mean, I'm older than both of you. In my lifetime, the teaching of the faith cratered. Um, and both of you as converts, you, you're self-taught Catholics. And people like me that grew up in a Catholic family, I learned most of my faith from my parents and from growing up in a Catholic family. As I've said to in other um, talks, the, the presumption that we were going to mass was just just like everything we else we did as a family i mean the you know just a kind of a ridiculous uh comparison <clears throat> we lived five miles out of town we knew if we were going into town we were going to go in a vehicle of some kind i mean that was just the presumption you didn't say i think i'll just walk i mean we'd have thought somebody was ill if they said, you're going to walk five miles to town. And it was that sort of matter of fact approach to going to mass on Sunday. We only had one choice. We're in a small mission church. And I think that um, that kind of basis is just not there for a lot of Catholics. 
parents, and we've talked a lot, uh, one of the goals of the St. Philip Institute is to really help parents have the information they need. Because as we all know, as you as parents know very clearly, the church teaches parents are the, the primary teachers. The first teachers of their children are the parents. And I can tell you as a priest, working with good people, good parents, wanting to do the right thing, telling them that they're the first teachers of their children scared them to death, especially when it comes to teaching the Catholic faith because they didn't know it. A lot of the information in this book, they were never given. They say, oh, well, Catholics believe abortion's wrong, but they really didn't have any depth of, of knowledge. And I think that's part of what's missing. And that's why I think it, it goes to emotion. I would imagine that all of us have seen, hopefully you haven't participated too much, but I know I've seen really, um, very emotional encounters between parents and their children, children, mainly teenagers probably, but <clears throat> those emotional encounters with a lot of anger and a lot of tears and a lot of hurt because neither side really knew much. And the parents are saying, we've got to go to mass. And the kids are saying, why? And the parents don't have good answers. Mm -hmm. The church has good answers. But we've done a crummy job. I'll say as a bishop, um, we're trying to work to do better. And that's what the St. Philip Institute's about. That's what Word on Fire is about. But for too many years, we've done a very poor job of giving people the information they need to not just go to emotion, but to say, this is the reason we believe bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. That's one of your topics the having the information for what we believe. I think that's one of the handicaps we have. It easily goes to emotion out of fear, out of just that sort of deer in the headlights when we were confronted, either the teenager or the parent, when we're confronted with something where we don't have good information to reason from, we go to emotion because that's our safety valve in a sense. Yeah, I'm right with you, Bishop. You know, it pains my heart talking to a lot of adult Catholics, parents who are Catholic. And like you said, they lack a reason why even they go to mass. You know, we, why do you go to mass? Well, it's just what we do. It's what our family does, you know, and there's something beautiful about that, that it's just the natural rhythm of their lives. But on the other hand, when their teenage son sees that and recognizes it, that they don't really have a good reason why they keep going to church on Sunday, well, when that teenager goes to college and he's out by himself, he's not going to have any reason why he would want to go to mass. Um, so I think as parents, we have a duty not just to, to teach our faith, to form our children, to disciple them, to help them to know the Lord and love the church. Um, but again, we need to give them good reasons for believing and behaving as we do. Otherwise, they'll, they'll think it's just irrational and senseless and they're just going through the motions. And if that's the case, young people think, why would I do that? Why would I care about waking up on Sundays to go to church? So I'm with you, Bishop. We all got to do better. Thank you, Brandon. Can you tell us a little more about where people can find more information about your book, your websites, and all of your work in general? 
Sure, the book can be picked up at any Catholic bookstore, uh, any online retailer. Again, it's called What to Say and How to Say It, Discussing Your Catholic Faith with Confidence and Clarity. Um, all of my other work can be found through my personal website, which is just brandonvot.com. So vot, V-O-G-T.com. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. It was a pleasure. I hope that we can have you back sometime to talk with us again about these issues. I, like always, feel like we could talk um, for hours and keep going. <laughs> um, thank you so much. We encourage all of our audience to please check out the St. Philip Institute, stphilipinstitute.org. And if you have any questions for our podcast, send them to podcast at stphilipinstitute.org. Thanks everyone for joining us for another episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. spirit. Almighty God, we ask your blessing for all of us that we may joyfully continue to learn and grow in the light of your Son and the power of your Holy Spirit. May the Blessed Virgin Mary continue to intercede for us as the loving mother that God has given us all. And we ask this blessing in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.